Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Okay, today's show is unique in a number of ways. It features three brilliant humans brought together by a passion for regenerative agriculture. It was filmed in front of a live studio audience at Commune Topanga, and it features a live musical performance. My guests include Dr. Zach Bush, an internationally recognized doctor and educator on the intersection of the microbiome, human health and disease, and our food production systems. Gail Fuller, the third and last generation owner of Fuller Farms, a 3,200-acre conventional corn and soybean operation, which he transformed into Circle 7, a 160-acre diversified farm that produces nutrient-dense whole foods regeneratively. And Alex Woodard, musician and author of the new book, Ordinary Soil. Alex begins today's episode by reading a harrowing portion of his new book that depicts the story of a farmer attempting suicide. He points vividly to the conditions in which American farmers are working and the toll it is taking on their mental health. Indeed, farmers have among the highest suicide rates in the country. But today we discuss the complex interplay between agriculture, health, and the environment, shedding light on the challenges faced by farmers and the need for a more regenerative approach to farming practices. Zach examines the connection between the decline of soil and the human gut microbiome, highlighting the role of glyphosate and Roundup. He also connects the dots between industrial agriculture and the scourge of chronic disease. Gail Fuller chronicles decade by decade the transformation of farming from more diversified crops to the widespread use of chemicals and monoculture farming. He outlines how the shift towards industrialized agriculture and its heavy reliance on chemical inputs has had devastating consequences for both human health and the environment. But the good news, he delivers some glistening stars of hope when he describes the remarkably swift change his soil has undergone after he began reinstating regenerative farming practices like crop rotation, managed grazing, no-till, and cover cropping. Uh, this was a fascinating and at times emotional conversation that I hope will unveil some of the realities facing the people that grow our food. Now, if you want to hear more from Dr. Zach Bush and learn how to best nourish yourself and the future of humanity, go to onecommune.com vital, that's V-I-T-A-L, to watch the first five days of his course, Vital Health, for free. But before we dive in, we're so grateful to those of you who write us reviews on Apple Podcasts that we created a special offer just for you, 30 days of free commune membership. That's all access for a whole month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review, then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review to receive your free all access for 30 days. Note that if you're on your laptop, you'll need to click listen on Apple Podcasts to open the app. And while you're there, please make sure that you're subscribed. This really helps support the show. Okay, without further delay, I present to you Dr. Zach Bush, Gail Fuller, and Alex Woodard. 
Dale, Alex, Zach. Good to be with you. Great to be with you. We're in a cabin, top of a mountain. It's just That's the right, right place, place to be. To be. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Um, okay, this is an exciting conversation in a, in a different kind of format, um, which I think will be interesting. So, you know, Alex, I went home last night at a late drive. Um, I had this in my hand. This is your new book, Ordinary Soil. And uh, I stayed up and, and, and read a good chunk of it. And I got to just say that the writing is absolutely exquisite and sublime. Well done. I know how hard the gestation process of something like this is, is difficult. You have a lot of different voices in your ear. Um, so you've acquitted yourself marvelously. So well done. And I, I thought it would be an interesting place to start um, is if you could kind of summarize the opening section of this book, which is quite harrowing right. and I think is reflective of, of something that we'll, we'll get into in this conversation. Right. Um, so we find ourselves when we start this story with a farmer in his truck and uh, he's attempting suicide because uh, he's, as the, you learn in the book, a, a series of things really generationally has built up. Um, and so I think maybe I thought I'd just read like a couple sentences to give uh, give you an idea of where this farmer is at. Um, Two chins, too many. Lifeless eyes weighted by sandbags filled with worry. Pale, loose cheeks hollowed by pills increased by bourbon. A ghost of himself. He touched his nose to the cheek of his sleeping wife a moment longer tonight as he tucked the top sheet around her shoulders and whispered a hopeful goodbye. The money would help her more than he ever could. He'd made sure of that, foregoing farm maintenance these last few months to pay the life insurance premiums. The policy was tucked into the laundry pile, along with a letter to her and the wheat subsidy claim. So we learn uh, as the chapter unfolds kind of what's gotten to this place in the short term. Um, and then in the, fly, in the final blissful detachment of no past and no future, a muted present tense washes over him. His spine turns to rubber as his head nods to the right, and there in the half breath before the truck hits the tree, he sees what has truly driven him to this opiate-addled madness. A figure with plated braids and a fringed leather shirt, with deerskin, breech cloth, and leggings, raising a translucent hand, reaching to the passenger window. Windshield shattering, engine pushing into the cab, gravity escaping the creek bank against a grinding orchestra of metal and glass. And as suddenly as it was stolen, the quiet peace of the open sky returns, save for the warbled playback from the thin reel of the cassette tape echoing through the dead night of the prairie. You see this hole? I dug it deep with these two hands. Black is cold like forever sleep I hope you understand I'm just a, a working man tired of fighting the land gonna 
Let these bones turn to oil in this ordinary soil. Beautiful. Thank you, Alex. Um, so, Gail, you're a multi-generational farmer, is that right? Yes. Where you live? East, southeast Kansas, our east of Wichita. Right. So, what Alex just read and what he just played on the guitar, does that, to you, sound like historical fiction? Or, or might that be one of the more articulate news reports you could hear on a local channel. This is where I would love to say that Alex is a really good fiction writer. <laughs> I would right. love to say that. Yeah. But I can't. Yeah. Yeah, this is the only thing fiction or the names of are not real farmers. It, it, yeah, it sounds just like a news report. Sad but true. So I think what Alex was referring to was that this gentleman who is attempting suicide uh, felt that he could better serve his family through availing them of the life insurance than he could ever uh, help them by working on the farm. Is that, can you take a minute to, to set the conditions in which American farmers are, are working and the stress that that's causing? You know, we, we've built a system in the United States of demanding cheap food and more production. And this has just literally come at the quality of life for the high majority of the American farmers. Uh, you know, the, the margins have become so razor thin. The, the land needed to make a living today is so big and the hours required to for each, for each farmer to, to see it through, just to make that dollar, uh, you know, at the expense of their kids' ball games and dance recitals and missed birthday parties and all of that. And, you know, sadly, as Alex said, at the end of the day, the, the way to make ends meet for the farmer's kids is through a life insurance policy. And that's really the only hope a lot of them have. Uh, you know, farmers, in the United States were five times more likely to kill themselves than the average American. And, you know, also there's just, there's really no help. There's no, I mean, there's obviously there's suicide hotlines, but farmers are a different breed. And there's really nobody out there that a farmer can call for, that would understand their plight, that, that as far as they see it anyway. Mm -hmm. So Zach, you're a medical doctor. Um, obviously you have a panoply of interests, but with your doctor's coat on, um, what has been the impact of this kind of farming system that uh, sanctifies cheap calories, um, shelf stability, and palatability on the human organism? I mean, the, the detrimental impact on human health will, is still unknown in the sense that the devastation in human health that we've seen so far is actually the, the top of the iceberg above the water right now. And we've unleashed something much greater than a nuclear bomb in the human genomics and the human 
biology that we literally will not see come to its full fruition of devastation until about generation four or five that are giving birth to the children that will have the genetic record of those previous four generations. And so the way in which injury starts to appear in, the, in any species, but in that human genetic sequence, is, it begins as an epigenetic pattern of injury where the environment starts to code the stress of the environment onto the individual. And that individual being a first generation to, to be hit will have some deficits in their ability to turn energy in their food into energy for repair and regeneration in their bodies. So you'll see a little bit of a slowing of repair, but you won't actually see it evident as, oh my gosh, we have a disease epidemic or whatnot. And so that's generation one, generation two, you've now moved beyond energy into the deeper levels of, of injury where you get into the immune system and all of this. And so as you go deeper and deeper, you're, you're unleashing not just the exposure of that generation, but the, the deeper injuries to the ancestors before. And it's at generation four where those epigenetic injuries, epigenetics is a description of a modification of a gene's behavior, but not a change in the gene. And so the gene remains unchanged, but the, the environmental stressors have now coded on top of that to change the behavior of the gene. We now know that every gene in your body, there's some 20,000 human genes, can make up to 400 different proteins. We used to think that one gene made one protein and it was the template for life. We now know that the environment is your template for life and it's gonna create 2 million different bodies depending on the environmental stimulus of those just 20,000 genes. And so the bodies that we build today are now the record of the last you know, four to six generations before us. And at that fourth generation, that epigenetic memory of environmental trauma gets coded into our, our genes. And so that's called a germline mutation. And so in the fourth generation after an injury, the epigenetic memory of it gets embedded into the code in the sperm and the ovum and now forever forward, that gene remembers the trauma. And so for this reason, we can show decade by decade since the adoption of chemical agriculture, that generational deepening of injury, it's important for all of us to come to terms with the fact we still haven't seen the full blow. We can, you know, look at um, specific rates of, of chronic diseases like diabetes, for example. I think now we're talking about 10 to 12 percent of Americans that actually have diabetes. There's another 38, 40 percent who have pre-diabetes. I'll raise my hand. Actually, I was one of them. 90 percent of those people that have pre-diabetes don't know they have pre-diabetes. So, but I was born in 1970. Uh, we're probably, I, I'm a little older than you maybe, but. Darn close. Darn close. <laughs> Uncomfortably uh, close. <laughs> um, you know, you were already on a farm in, in the 70s. So, it, you know, we didn't see these rates of chronic disease like diabetes or even heart disease and stroke are all sorts of kind of metabolically based diseases in the 70s. So what was the environment like kind of on the farm uh, in the 70s? Um, and then, you know, Zach, maybe you can overlay a little bit about the just general health profile um, of Americans around that time. And we can kind of trace, you know, some of these trends through the last 50 years uh, of food production and human health. 
So I'm, I'm a little older than both of you <laughs> by almost a decade, uh, born in 62. So yeah, I, I was eight when the 70s came around. I, I grew up on, I'm, I'm sure it would be deemed a pretty typical Kansas family farm in the 70s. Uh, you know, by today's standards, fairly small, but at the time it was a medium-sized farm. We grew, we had, I think it was seven different crops in our rotation. Uh, our, our main enterprise was a, a breeding hog operation, but we also had some cattle on the farm. We had chickens for our own, you know, our own consumption and gardens, things like that. Uh, heavy tillage, uh, no-till really wasn't a thing yet. So like most farms, a lot of tillage, but very little chemical use. We, we couldn't have been certified organic, but we really weren't using many chemicals. In fact, I can remember as a kid standing in the shed while my dad and grandpa were unloading 50 pound bags of fertilizer. You know, today you're buying fertilizer by the semi load and we're unloaded some 50 pound bags. And I, I can remember the discussion about, you know, does this work, will this work? It, it wasn't our first time they'd been using it, but you know, it was still that new to us that, you know, those are the discussions. And by the end of the 70s, obviously, you know, we'd been told to to become specialists, go big or go home. And the farm grew immensely from, from 1970 to 1980 as we, you know, we fell into the mantra. And by the, by the end of the decade, um, herbicide use was much more common. Fertilizer use, you know, we were putting nitrogen fertilizer on all of our grain crops, or not grain crops, but the corn, wheat, milo, soybean crops, obviously not. But uh, So there, there were some pretty major changes in the 70s. Uh, but we were all healthy. And I, I can actually remember a family moving in across the road from us that, that weren't farmers, uh, but had a couple of kids a little younger than us, and one of them had, had allergies. And we were just mind boggled that, <laughs> that mm. allergic to, how can you be allergic? What's that? We didn't even know what it meant. You know, they had to explain to us that he was allergic to dust and to dog hair. And, you know, t today that's just a common occurrence. But back then it was, it was, it was odd. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the, the timing of the seventies is interesting in that the, the chemical revolution really started in the 19, late 50s, early 60s as the green revolution, and it really started in the fertilizers rather than the herbicides and pesticides. Uh, the, the concept of NPK fertilizer, as it's been called, which is nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, was a reductionist approach to nutrients, right? And so you, you look at that entire periodic chart of over 90 nutrients on that known to be the backbone of life on earth. And we picked three and said, this is enough to grow food in and prove that you could turn, turn, you know, dead soil into, you know, something that could produce green plants with those three nutrients. And so that was all the evidence we needed was like, okay, three nutrients, that's cheap. We know that we can get that all out of fossil fuel and all this. And so we started pulling that, that NPK fertilizer and it took us three decades, really, from the 1950s to the 1970s to start to uncover that deeper issue is that if you if you force life to happen without the full suite of nutrients available, you develop weakness in, in, in the biology. And that then manifests as a poor immune system. And, and you pointed out a kiddo, the first kiddo to have allergies to the air he breathed, was starting to be seen in those 1970s. 
as the kid is losing his immune system's relationship to the air that he breathes, the soil was losing its relationship to biodiversity. And so then we started to see fungus becoming a problem, viruses becoming problems on plants. We started to see the issues of invasive uh, species of what became known as weeds, which were just native plants historically. Uh, and they started to become invasive because the plants weren't too weak now to kind of met out their own environment and, and, and choose what they needed from a, a diverse thing. And so this then led to the debut of this massive you know, industry of herbicides and pesticides that became necessary to palliate crops being grown in this reductionist approach to nutrition. And I think your your journey there in the Midwest is interesting if you if you contrast 1971 or 76 or something like that. 76 is when your your glyphosate kind of becomes mainstream. And so there's only a few years left in that decade for us to start to see farmers really start to need and believe that they had a solution to weeds that hadn't been an issue a couple decades earlier. And they're, they're starting to really push on that, that herbicide thing. And the diseases that emerged within just those short few years are really interesting. So immune dysfunction in the plants, immune dysfunction in the children starting to show up there, but it wasn't really evident but for a few individuals. But what really became evident was in the early 80s was the obesity movement. And so okay. when you reflect on that time period, what do you recall in the Midwest starting to emerge there? Yeah, and I think sure. the end of World War II was really timely in this movement, as we had now had you know seventy five years of of plowing the prairie, and our organic matter had been depleted to the point that, you know, before that we really didn't need the nitrogen because we had it naturally in the soil, and so by the you know the sixties and seventies we'd played the soil out, so that's where we started seeing the responses, and yeah, as we moved into the late seventies and the early eighties. You know, once we'd started becoming dependent on on commercial fertilizer, nitrogen, starting to use a little bit of phosphorus now, and obviously the the first person that eats was the weeds. They and they loved the nitrogen fertilizers. So, uh, you know, as we continued to feed the, the commercial fertilizer, the weeds start to take over, and so the answer obviously was was chemical herbicides. And so we started, and and for us, it personally, it wasn't glyphosate because it was really an expensive chemical at the time and with no with no no-till it was more the atrazines and treflans and you know atrazine obviously not a not a none of the chemicals are good but atrazine has its own set of issues and so as as the 80s unfolded yeah herbicide use just shot through the roof and then we we got the the technology the ability to to spray over the top post post-emergent herbicides instead of just spraying them before we planted. We're now spraying it over the top of the crops also. And, you know, and that was also early 80s. We probably would have made our first uh, insecticide. We started using them for the first time. You know, as the, as the immune system of the soil starts to break down, the, the environment starts to break down as we're, you know, we're wiping out weeds more readily. That's home for insects good and bad and so you know now now we've got the need for insecticides also and it just really in the 80s starts to snowball i think it's a really good uh well not good it's very indicative tipping point here because as i'm sitting here talking listening to these guys like that book that you have like it's it's based on the stories from these guys right and so i'm sitting here listening to this and and it's all really coming full circle. Um, it's quite a trip. Um, 
But as Gail was speaking, I think that this offers um, a door into the mental health side of things because I think the late 70s, early 80s seemed to be, from all the research I did, uh, quite a tipping point because he, he referred to Earl Butts and the whole, like, go big or get out kind of thing, right? And this massive expansion, which a lot of farmers tried to do. They borrowed, you know, really high debt loans to buy land, and then they end up defaulting, they end up losing their farm. And in the book, at least, um, the main character's dad, he attempts suicide also because he's in that place. That's the first sign that I really saw when I was doing the research of where uh, documented, at least, mental health issues really started popping up, you know, with depression and, and really deep anxiety in farmers. And it seems like it's happening in concert with the biology that Zach's talking about, you know? So um, to me, like this opens that window into um, how farmers are actually living, you know, and the decisions they're making and how it's impacting them and their family. Like, you know, it's a very human interest thing at that point, you know? The, the concept of ground zero is very real there, obviously, when you think about the farmer being out in the field spraying these herbicides and pesticides for the <laughs> first time in generations, you know, and so you're breathing it and and you're drenched in it, literally. Mm -hmm. Like you know, when I first started lecturing on farms maybe six or seven years ago um, in the Midwest, after my talks, people would come up in long lines to ask questions about their family's health and everything else. And over and over again, I heard, you know, the statement, I don't breathe this stuff. I am drenched in this stuff by the end of the day. My clothes are drenched in those chemicals. Is it possible that my child's brain defect that he was born with is because I was drenched in this when I conceived my son, you know? And, you know, the, it, it's such a grim reality when you're put on the front lines of warfare, no matter if that's a foreign war against humans or a local war against weeds, when you are given a chemical warfare toolbox, the veteran always takes the brunt of that mental health piece, right? And so the PTSD of your warrior coming out of World War II became the PTSD of the farmers of the 1950s and 60s because that chemical warfare was given to the farmer that had been up until, you know, during Vietnam was really reserved for chemical warfare against Cambodian, you know, jungles, then became, you know, the chemical warfare against weeds of, of the Midwest farmer in the 1960s and 70s. So that, that transition of war plays out in such a grim way when you're at ground zero of this kind of nuclear bomb on biodiversity. And at the time, you know, maybe in our defense, if you can put that, that concept together, we had no idea that the human body was reliant on a microbiome. We just thought human was against everything. You know, we thought bacteria were enemies, viruses were enemies. We just thought it was all bad. And, and a, a healthy human body must be a sterile human body. The advent of antibiotics in the in World War II really hammered that home. Of like, oh my gosh, now people can recover from all kinds of diseases because of antibiotics. Well, the herbicides and pesticides that start getting sprayed broadly function as antibiotics. They kill bacteria, fungi, earthworms, just about anything you spray on it. But the, the disaster there, like you're saying, is the biology is leading this phenomenon of, of suicide that starts emerging in the 1980s. 
is that the tiny little bacteria in the body don't actually live in the gut. They live inside of each of our cells. Every single human cell has about 200 mitochondria inside of it. And mitochondria are tiny little bacteria that specialize the ability to take long carbon chains into energy. And so we, we rely heavily on the energetics of mitochondria, those little tiny bacteria that take our food and turn them into the energy we can run on. And so what we didn't realize we were doing as we started broad spraying herbicides and pesticides is we were literally killing the workforce that would create an energetic body. And so the, the lights of the farmer started to go out in the 1970s. The, the literal energetic light energy within a human body started to dim. And the most energy demanding cells in the body are your ones responsible for food metabolism, so it's like the liver and the brain. And the brain has 2,000 mitochondria per human neuron. And so when you start ingesting and covering yourself in herbicides, pesticides that are functioning antibiotics, you start to kill that workforce, your mental health is going to emerge as one of your first symptoms, which will go right alongside obesity. And that's exactly what happened. So by 1980, you start to hear the new president, you know, Reagan and, and the first lady declaring by, I think, in 1983 or something, a war against obesity. And so that was... That was not something that needed to be talked about in 1973. Right. It didn't exist. So a new war was declared against obesity in the 1980s, not realizing it was our war that had started the obesity epidemic, really. You know, it was our war against nature. And so the obesity and the mental health, I think, of, are necessary in that. And then as the decades unfold, you see the other organ systems getting involved. I think it's interesting. There's you know, just emerging research now in a number of highly stringent books that are looking at neurodegenerative diseases and dementia now really as metabolic diseases, essentially brain energy deficits. Mm -hmm. um, and, and part of that is insulin resistance in the brain because of the amount of crop, the, the kinds of crops that we're creating. But the other side of that, uh, of course, is, is mitochondrial dysfunction at the neuron level for the, uh, uh, related to the use of glyphosate and other pesticides. Um, so, you know, I, I, I thought there was something incredibly moving. I've heard you speak about this a couple of times. I think you went to a talk, Gail, um, about glyphosate, um, where glyphosate was framed as an antibiotic to you for the first time. And that kind of aha moment that you had around it, but also sort of the guilt and the, the shame around it. Can you maybe untangle that a little? Yeah, this, this would have been in 2012, I believe. Uh, so, but by then, you know, we'd, we'd converted to no-till and at, at that point in time in the 90s, no-till meant chemical farming because there's two ways of killing weeds, chemicals or tillage. And so when you, we eliminated the tillage, we obviously started using more chemicals and then the Roundup Ready crops come along in the late 90s. And I was an early adopter in no-till and the first farmer in Kansas to plant cover crops. So I'm using more glyphosate than anybody because we're using it as a burn down, we're using it over the top on soybeans and then on corn. And so I also became the first farmer to having resistant weeds. And as we're starting to figure that out, uh, it's also about the same time we started hearing these little murmurs about there could be some problems with some of these pesticides and glyphosate may not be good. And, and so of course, the first thing I did is went to my team, which all told me those were just 
California tree hugging idiot hippies that shouldn't be talking with their mouth full. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, we are in the trees right now. <laughs> there we are. And so, you know, I believed it because it was my team. And, but at the same time, um, you know, I, because of my cover cropping and doing some things at the forefront of the movement, I'm starting to get asked to speak at some conferences. And so I'm running into some other rogue farmers and, and run into rogue scientists or two that have been kicked out of the system or left the system and start to hear some other stories. And I was at a, I was at a conference in Nebraska one night or one day and a snowstorm had hit the night before and my mentor, Dr. Jill Clapperton is speaking at the conference and she walks in the room the next morning and there's seven of us in the room. And she goes, well, we're supposed to be talking about soil microorganisms and I know everybody here, so I've got something on my mind. We're gonna spend the day talking about glyphosate. Hmm. And this is my mentor. Wow. It was a long ride home from Nebraska. Yeah, yeah. And so I got home and I started researching and uh, a friend of mine, we just started looking for all anything we could find and we ran across Dr. Don Huber's work online. And in the beginning, we just couldn't, we, we just kept thinking, this guy's got an ax to grind. There's, you cannot have this much stuff and nobody knows about it. But we kept thinking, you know, if, if a little bit of what he's talking about is true, this isn't good. And I was listening to a particular interview he did one night online, and I'd listened to this thing four or five times. And between me being ADHD and him throwing so much information out, you know, it's just hard to soak it all in, but I knew there was something in this interview that I wasn't hearing. And the fifth or sixth time I listened to it, I heard him say glyphosate's an antibiotic. And it was 11 o'clock at night. I'm sitting at the dining room table. It was tough. I mean, the two, two things hit me instantly. I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm on this soil health movement and I finally am understanding that there's life in the soil and life in the gut and they're connected. And, you know, it didn't take a rocket scientist to understand that if I'm trying to grow earthworms and arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi and bacteria, I shouldn't be spraying with an antibiotic three times a year. But it was also that my team was lying to me either knowingly or not. And that really hurt almost as bad as, as the antibiotic part. And I didn't sleep for two nights. Um, I called my kids the next morning and apologized for everything I'd ever done to them. And we quit using glyphosate cold turkey, which from a financial and agronomy's point of view probably wasn't the smartest decision <laughs> in the world. But it, but yeah. I just couldn't, I couldn't use it anymore. And, you know, unfortunately my replacement was Paraquat, which really isn't a whole lot better, if any, but yeah, mm -hmm. it, that was, uh, that was certainly probably the biggest moment in my journey of where we are today was, was that night and finding out that, it, that it's an antibiotic. Give me goosebumps with 2012 because that's I left the university yeah. in 2010 and in 2012 we started undercover in our laboratory the glyphosate story so that's so bizarre that our stories have overlapped that that closely I didn't realize that at all that's that's daunting but it was almost the same experience for me when we it was my my chief science officer in, in my lab uh, he's John Gilday out of He's an incredible PhD in cell biology out of Johns Hopkins, and I, he and I worked very closely at the University of Virginia on some of my cancer research. 
I had been developing chemotherapy and was really steeped in the mechanisms of how cancer happens. And we were playing by a very old school mentality, which has continued to taught in medical schools today, which is cancer is the result of genetic injury and blah, 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 blah. But in that last part of the, the 2000 decade, I, there was all these murmurs from California and scientists saying, it's a screw up in the microbiome that's the for the harbinger of cancer, not genetic injury. And we would literally sit around lab meetings on the west coast or on the east coast. They're laughing about it. It's like that that flies in the face of so much good science. You know, blah blah blah. There's no way. And then 2012, I started my own little tiny basic science laboratory, and John started you know weighing in on this science of, of Glyphosate, and the very first time we watched a gut membrane blow apart underneath just a tiny bit of glyphosate was that same kind of moment where your, your Don Huber moment of like, if it's this damaging, how could it possibly have not been realized or covered up for this long? Because it's instantaneous. Like, it wasn't like, I think something's happening. It literally <laughs> blows apart the membrane. Like, it's just so dramatic. And and what you do know and as a cancer researcher is that an isolated cell always becomes cancer. And glyphosate has a very unique function in all those herbicides and pesticides to cut all of the connections between the cells. And so it cuts the, the tight junctions, gap junctions, and all that and leaves cells isolated. So to see that happen in 30 seconds, I had been taught that cancer takes like 17 to 20 years of constant genetic injury that's unrepairing before you get a cancer. I was watching cancer cells happen in, in five minutes, you know, and so it was, it was just too much to handle for that brain that day. But like it happened to you is you can't unsee it and it leads to a whole bunch of new questions. And for the last 13 years that we've been chasing those questions of like, what, if that's true, then what's true? And, and the beautiful story that really emerges is how fast we heal. You know, so for the severity of the injury of the chemicals, the speed at which the microbiome is capable of recovering that injury is super humbling. And I, I think that that's what we're seeing in your journey as well, is that as soon as you, every decision you made to get the, the antibiotic out of the farm led to immediate changes in the soil. So give us a little bit of perspective on the faith leap at the, of saying we're going cold turkey on an herbicide what was the journey from there? Well, I'll back up a little bit. So in the, in the by the late 90s, when the Roundup Ready technology came out, you know, I, I'd mentioned in the early 70s, we were growing seven different crops. By the late 90s, uh, I was growing Roundup Ready corn and Roundup Ready soybeans by the year 2000. Just two crops. At two that crops. Yeah, yeah, both Roundup Ready. Uh, so can you just explain what Roundup Ready means uh, just for a second? Sure. So, so. Soybean was the first crop that was genetically modified. So, so Roundup or glyphosate is a herbicide that is, that is a lot different than all the other herbicides in that it literally killed everything it touched, where most herbicides would kill grasses or they would kill broadleaves or you know, something along those lines. But, but glyphosate, was a, it was a miracle drug, really, what we thought of when we used it, because it certainly made our lives easier. So then... Uh, Soybeans were genetically modified so that you could spray glyphosate on them and it wouldn't kill the soybean. It would kill everything else in the field. So wonderful. And then they genetically modified corn. And now there's, there's, there's a lot of things that are, that are modified to where 
where the seeds have been modified where the plant can take glyphosate without being killed. Yeah, and what did that do to your optionality around your own inputs? Were you then bound to be acquiring those seeds year over year, kind of outside of your own your own seed depot? Yeah, the the big thing that came along with that was that, that Monsanto patented the seed. And so we could no longer save seed. Uh, seed saving wasn't, wasn't an everyday practice uh, with soybeans, but most farmers saved them at least once every two to three years and would reap and then would start over like in year three or year four and buy some new seed. But after the technology came out, seeds all became patented pretty shortly. And so now we're not allowed to save any, any seed, of course it's patented. So that, and then with that came a, a technology fee, uh, which at the time was, if I remember, is it like a 40% price increase in the seed overnight? Uh, and, and we paid that within a year or two willingly just for the convenience of a clean field that before, before the Roundup Ready technology came along, you had to look at this field as this problem, so it was witch's brew. Let's, let's try a, a half a pint of this and a dash of this, and it, it was grandma out back with literally stirring and hoping. And then over here in this field, you had to do something totally different, you know, clean the sprayer completely out four or five times. It, it became a nightmare. I mean, it, it was work. And then the technology comes along and fill the tank with Roundup, Go out, spray. And you can just spray indiscriminately at this juncture because of the engineering of the seeds. Yep. Yeah. Everything dies. The fields are beautiful. They look like golf courses. Man. It, it was just, it was wonderful for four or five years. I want to point out something there is um, I use the words glyphosate and Roundup interchangeably often. I think most of the world has learned how to do that. Glyphosate was popularized by Monsanto and uh, they, they bought the patent, patent for that and been patented back in the 1950s and never got to market. Got, gets to market in 1976 in a big way through Monsanto, but it came off patent in 2006, and now it's you know made all over the world by almost every chemical company. All five big chemical companies in the U.S. are that's their primary herbicide pesticide they produce. China produces the vast majority on the global market um, of glyphosate. But the reason I want to stop for a second is because I often forget to, to mention that Roundup is a patented thing that remains patented because glyphosate, while off patent, can be used by everybody. Roundup is a technology that exponentially increases the toxicity of glyphosate. Mm -hmm. And so in our laboratory, for example, we use, use just you know, off-the-counter glyphosate as, as a chemical test agent across all of our cells that we, we study. And we can show you know, down to two parts per billion the damage done. Uh, two parts per billion is what you see in the water. It's, there's more than two parts per billion in our rain now in the United States and the air we breathe. And so two parts per billion is a tiny trace, and yet it's enough to show all of this damage. And so we can take it down to these very minute levels in our laboratory. But if we then try to use Roundup instead of glyphosate, 
all of our cells die and we don't even get any data. We can't, it's too toxic for the cells to actually survive long enough for us to figure out what's going on. And so the, the, it is a logarithmically higher toxicity and it's patented to work better and that's why it does work so well is you've got 16 other chemicals in there that the majority of those are some form of surfactant that allow that glyphosate to get across cell membranes of a plant or from a, a root fiber or a bacteria and it just you know it gets across every biologic living thing instantly and so that that innovation of glyphosate to roundup remains on the market today and you can see go to any home depot or whatever and you're going to find out that Monsanto was just the beginning of it. Now you have Bayer and all these other companies that are figuring out new ways to get glyphosate more available to cells and more, therefore more toxic. And they call them all kinds of new different things, you know, power herb or power or something or, you know, super, super duper killer or whatever it is, you know. And so all of those trade names are patented because it's actually deeper. The trade names are representative of new formulas that make the glyphosate more bioavailable to, to nature that's trying to resist its toxicity. Um, so that's, that's something for us to be aware of that when we start to talk about Roundup Ready crops, glyphosate's only part of your problem. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to mention too that, you know, listening to Gail's story just now, it just sparked this in me. Like these guys and women in the moment are doing the best they can with what they have, right? And what they know and what they've been told. And this goes back to what you were talking about earlier about not, you know, all this information's out there. It's just why haven't we, you know, like identified it and put it, you know, into practice in terms of the toxicity of Roundup and glyphosate. Gail was doing what he had to do. And it, there was nobody telling him, hey, this, you know, before 2012, when you used to do the real start turns, nobody telling you don't do this. You got your team, like you said, saying, this is our direction. This is what we're doing. It's just what you did. You know, I mean, it's so easy to, to have some hindsight and look back 2020 and be like, oh my God, how could they do this? It's just, you don't know. You know, and all this information, um, I, I wrote something in the story uh, because of this. It's all out there, you know, like, like Zach's basically character goes to Texas A&M and goes through these National Institutes of Health studies that are all older and they're, they're all there, you know. It's just a matter of, of reaching that critical mass where we can start putting some things into play. And now Gail's got a whole different farming system going on, you know. He's one guy, you know. We need... We need a lot of them, you know, and so I just think it's important to note that like through history, generally, you know, the farmers have been doing the best they can with what they know, you know, now they might know a little different, you know. I, there's a nuance there that's super important that you're hitting on there is the farmers doing what, what they know. And I would say that's, if they did that, we'd be in good shape. <laughs> um, <laughs> the farmer is doing what they are taught, They're taught okay, yeah, right, which enough. is different than what they know. Yeah. Fair enough. And it only takes one generation of being taught something new that sounds good to forget what you knew. Right. And what you know is what you experience. And that's how farming has worked for you know, 100,000 years is you know how to farm because for 40 generations, your family's been doing this mechanism of crop rotation, biodiversification of, of inputs and outputs and the whole thing. And it's, there's this ancestral memory that comes through in your book really well. There's an ancestral memory that is in the knowing. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think that's what I get excited about when I'm at Gail's farm now is you get to see farmers from all over the country coming together, reminding each other of what they know. 
Great. And deprogramming the education. And I would say that's the same problem with the medical doctor is we are educated and therefore discouraged from learning. Mm. The process of learning is experiential. The, per, the process of education is programming. And so we need to transition wow. to an experiential learning system for physicians and farmers and every other trade out there because we have been duped by an education system that is controlled by industries that have simple solutions to, to look convenient, to make it look shiny, to make it look you know, profitable. Wow. And in all that education, we are unprogrammed from our own knowing. Right. And, and along those lines, not only were, were we not told that we were doing it wrong, we were told we were doing it right. right. We were mm -hmm. giving pats on the back. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in the 70s, Monsanto and the land-grant universities would hold up a glass of glyphosate and say, this is safe enough to drink. None of them would ever take a drink of it, but they would <laughs> continue. Right. And today, in 2023, most of the land-grant universities will still argue that glyphosate is safe and it's benign. There's a really dark thing that just came to mind with that is that uh, it's over in India recently found out that the huge suicide rates that are blowing up in India since we've signed NAFTA. When Clinton signed NAFTA, it put subsidized U.S. grains and other commodity crops in competition with the global marketplace. And so tariffs came down, which meant that we were farmers all over the world were suddenly competing against crop prices that were cheaper than it cost them to grow the food in the first place. So not only was it impossible to make money, they were automatically losing money. So in, the, in that first few months after NAFTA was signed, it was estimated that 50,000 farmers committed suicide just in South America and, and Central America alone. But over in India, you know, the crazy thing just playing off of what you were just saying is that here's the chemical company saying it's safe to drink. The primary cause of death and suicide in, in India is drinking glyphosate. What? Wow. They're, they just go and drink it off the shelf because it's the only toxin they've got in the oh household and they don't have a gun to shoot themselves in the head. And so they're drinking the very thing that we said was safer than water because they innately know that will kill them. Right. Again, we know right. what we haven't been taught. <laughs> we know that stuff is poison. And so there's this innate knowingness. If I want to end my life, I'll just drink a, drink a half a gallon of that and I'll be dead by morning. Right. And so that's that that just closes the loop on a 50-year lie, you know, basically. Well, of this, there's so, a skull you know. and crossbones on the box. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We believe the person telling us that it's safe, even though there's a skull and crossbones on the on the package. Yeah. So yeah, we we know, but because we're desperate, we'll we'll listen to the, to the salesperson. And so, so there you are at the turn of, of the millennia, and you've now reduced to two crops. You're mass supplying mm -hmm. glyphosate. You're you're producing what's corn and soy, right? Mm -hmm. Where's that corn and soy going? Who's eating it? And is it actually a who, or is it a <laughs> <laughs> uh, cows and cars? Cows and cars. Yep. Most of us going to cows and cars, two things that weren't designed to, or certainly in the case of cows, not designed to digest it to begin with. Not Neither cars. Ethanol is terrible for a gasoline engine. And so the fact that we're, that's why you can only do 10% ethanol because you put any more than 10% in there, you destroy the, your, your piston lining immediately. So yeah, the 
alcohol is is the original glyphosate in some ways. Alcohol cuts all of the the joints between cells as well, and it's an oxidant. It, it oxidizes the metal within the engine, and so you're rusting the engine by putting that ethanol in there. And so it's just such a farce that a that it's somehow good for the earth, you know, to to grow this. But I, I'm intrigued by buy it though because from your perspective why did it become cows and cars like what was that how did we move from feeding humans to cows and cars in a couple of decades were, were there economic realities that were in there that was obvious to you uh well yeah i mean the reality for us was that the farm bill was written and the subsidy program and the crop insurance was set up for basically four major crops corn soy wheat cotton and and, you know, and I suppose from, a, you know, the middleman, the, the elevators, the grain handlers, et cetera, you know, if you can put up a grain elevator that only handles one or two crops as opposed to six, you suddenly become more efficient. And, you know, it, it's all been about streamlining efficiencies and and things like yeah. that. I, that just a guess from my yeah. perspective. And, and I assume you'd moved all the animals off the farm at this point. Uh, we, we quit the pig business when the market collapsed in the early 70s. And then we went into beef. And but yeah, in the in the 80s, the cattle were all removed from the grass because we could put them in a feedlot and feed them corn. And so yeah, that we still had cattle in the operation, but not on the land. Yeah. So it was reductionist and separating, yeah. separating, yeah. separating, separating. And along those lines, by the, you know, by the year 2000, when I'm down to two crops, we're now not just applying nitrogen and phosphorus and herbicides and insecticides. We're, we're using large amounts of fungicides, uh, potassium, sulfur, zinc, boron. I mean, we're just working our way down the list. As we simplified the system, the more we relied on inputs. Yeah. You had just mentioned in that first chapter that you read that tucked into the laundry was mm -hmm. wheat subsidy claim. Wheat subsidy claim. Yeah. And so I feel like this is one of the, the least understood things by I've sat with people on the Ag Committee on our, in our Senate. I've sat with farmers and I've sat with consumers and none of them understand the farm bill. So can you give us a little bit of perspective on when you say the farm bill was written as a subsidy? How how badly has that thrown off a natural system of economies for the farmer? Oh, it's just it's just been devastating. Uh, you know, we we've simplified our system to to grow one or two crops, which is as I you know just stated, we're now relying heavily on more and more inputs. Uh, so we're you know we're killing biodiversity on and around the farm. Uh, we we've taken the to me it's taken the fun out of farming because you're only looking at two things and you wake up every day wondering what you have to kill today. And you have to borrow money to get all those inputs. Is that right? Yeah. So, yeah, we have to borrow money to get the inputs and you have to have crop insurance to borrow the money. And where's the crop and insurance? The crop insurance from? is sold by the bank. And to and get crop insurance, what do you need? What, what guarantees does the bank need from, from the farm bill? Oh, you're going to have to go further on that one. Oh, I, Sorry, my yeah, brain. I didn't, I, I didn't mean that. To, <laughs> I probably just didn't state it right. But the banks can't loan you the, the input money unless you have USDA crop insurance, right. basically. Yeah. And the USDA crop insurance is defined by the farm bill, basically. Yeah. And so the USDA is, is the arbiter of all that money coming out of the farm bill. 
but it, it, crop insurance makes it sound like, well, if an event fails and like if my house burns down, which is an unlikely thing, then it, but it, it's not actually an insurance, it's actually a subsidy. No. And so yeah. you're actually getting paid by that thing. So describe a little bit of that yeah. insurance model. Yeah, you're right. It, and it's really insurance is not what it is by and large. Yeah, it's we're being incentivized to plant whatever crop the government thinks we need more of this year and less incentivized for whatever crop they think we need less of this year of the four main ones. I mean, all of the other crops are not all of them. A lot of the minor crops, there are subsidies and crop insurance available, but it, it's a lot smaller portion as opposed to the big four. And also, you know, this is all the farm bill and it's all overseen by USDA, but USDA is in the pocket of industry who's selling the products to begin with. Also, so I assume you have car insurance and house insurance. If you get a couple of DUIs, what happens to your car insurance? You lose that stuff. Uh, I'm allowed to lose five ton of soil per acre per year, yet I'm still allowed to get full crop insurance. In fact, it's you know, most of the what they consider the best management practices are devastating to the environment, to the farm and to all that to, to be allowed to get crop insurance. So, you know, we're allowed to get multiple DUIs and still still have crop insurance. So then you're incentivized to grow these crops and then do you pass along that savings to big food, for example? Essentially what I'm trying to get at is are the big food manufacturers allowed to essentially create their product under the true cost of production? So the, the, the money that we get off of the subsidies, by and large, just goes back into the system. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and obviously when times get really rough in agriculture, there's usually some kind of an extra program that comes out. For example, you know, during the Trump administration, we had the big payoff because of the, the trade war with China that went on for a while. Yeah. In, the, in the 80s, we had the PIC program that come out and the, the CRP program when, when farms are really failing at scale. And what we've seen anytime there's any of these really extra large programs come out, the following year, the price of inputs has somehow mysteriously gone up. Rent goes up, land costs go up. I mean, farmers have a horrible history of putting dollars in their pocket. That, that money gets cycled back into the system really rapidly. Yeah. So Alex, you as a sort of cultural interpreter and storyteller of this saga, I mean, as you researched for your book, uh, what was happening to the, the actually underlying the substrate of the culture of the farmer? And maybe you guys can both talk about this between kind of in the 70s where there seemed to be a lot of success and conviviality within the farming community. And then here you're in the year 2000, you're in the aughts, and you're essentially monoculture, monocropping, um, heavily reliant on inputs, scale, margins are getting squeezed, so you need greater scale and greater volume. What's that doing to the, to the culture of farming? You know, it's interesting. When Zach was speaking a second ago about cancer, and you know, a, a cell that's isolated is gonna become cancerous, right? The same thing seemed to happen um, in my research when I was going between, you know, especially post-World War II and now. Um, it really, we go back to the Earl Butts thing again, it really started with, um, in my view at least, when smaller farms started 
coming to get, you know, getting bought out, even by farmers, not like corporations, even individual farmers buying out their neighbors, right? Automatically, that reduces, you know, the, the social aspect by half, right? You got one family farming a bigger plot. It's, that's oversimplifying it, but you see what I mean. Um, that started happening on a grand scale, like way more, you know? And, you, you know, Gail and I were talking last night, um, this moves back into the soil microbiome and that kind of thing. But with the advanced mechanical farming, especially these machines that are incredible, like these, some of these combines, obviously they drive themselves, right? It's isolationist by nature. You're sitting in this cab, right? And it's doing everything for you. You know, you're not communicating with anybody, right? And so um, those are two very, you know, simple examples of like the isolationism um, that you start to see happen in humans. Right. And everybody, you know, we see it now with with our, our devices and everything. Everybody kind of turns inward. But I really noticed it like in the, the research I was doing post World War Two, you know, uh, a big part of it, like I said, was these smaller farms just became big. I mean, it's that simple. You know, it goes from six different families farming like a you know four four mile square area to one automatically. You know, it kicks out a bunch of the social interaction, you know, and that the last um, the, the last really like convivial and this is actually quite appropriate um, story that I heard timeline wise when like farmers were all together um, was the story that one it's in the book. But a, a friend told me who lived it about, you know, the the, the, the Monsanto uh, events right at the community center or at the Masonic, the Masonic Lodge, right? Like that's that's when the last time that these guys were seen to me to really be together, right? And they were there because some rep had showed up and been like, okay, you know what? We got something better than two four D. We're gonna, you know, this is gonna change everything. It's safer. So these guys, you know, Gail knows. You go to this thing, you get all you can eat tenderloin. You got door prizes. You know, my buddy got his first LP album. As a door prize, and he was in. He's like, "Yeah, Monsanto, let's go!" Right. So these events, which ended up, you know, leading to even more isolation, ironically, were the last things that I could kind of find where farmers came together. Um, and it's it's kind of a, a very sad irony, right? It was like everybody's coming together, thinking they're onto something new. It ends up being something entirely different. So that's what I noticed in the social strata, at least. It's like post-World War II is when it really started. But when, man, when, when Monsanto and Roundup got involved, it was, it was game on as far as the isolation part. Yeah. The collapse can't even really be fathomed by anybody who hasn't driven through the Midwest recently. Right. Like, yeah, when we started filming the film for Farmer's Footprint, which took us into Gale's world, um, we drove, it was 1,700 miles, I think. It was from the headwaters of the Mississippi River up in Minnesota all the way to the mouth of the Mississippi down in, in uh, New Orleans. And that two-week journey took us through innumerable small towns in the Midwest through, through a dozen different states. And to the last one, there is no retail left. All things are boarded up. There's no restaurants left. All is boarded up. The last two things that were closing consistently and left were one bar, which were literally getting boarded up as we went by, and the and the U.S. mail uh, post office were being boarded up, and so it's it's you can't really overstate the ghost towns that have now emerged from the middle of this country and. Now that I'm doing a lot of work in Africa, rural Africa, I'm telling them that what you guys have here 
has disappeared in the United States. We have no communities left. We only have big business trying to, to survive. And, and a country cannot survive with a rotten core, just as the tree cannot either. And uh, I, I really, you know, if I could wave a wand to really transform the United States as a nation, I would force every homemaker to take it take a five-day drive through the midwest mm. and ask the question is is this what we we're going to survive on and can we all participate in a reinvigoration of community yeah. and that's what it's going to take is decentralization and resocialization of humans yeah there's this more and more research coming out on the downstream impacts of social isolation and loneliness i think there's a study i saw come out of byu where um, as a risk determinant for all-cause mortality, uh, social isolation and loneliness was equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day or being an alcoholic and a greater risk than being obese. Wow. So you look at, you know, cultures um, that have been boarded up like that and, you know, you start to, you know, connect the dots pretty quickly between not just suicide and addiction, of course, that's huge, but also... Um, also chronic disease. You know, when you, uh, sorry, go ahead. If you Along those yeah. lines, one of the shocking things that we saw with that isolation was children, the effect mm -hmm. on kids in the Midwest. And so it was not unusual. We would walk into these houses to do an interview or whatnot, and there'd be one kid in there. When I grew up in Colorado, I grew up going to CU Buff games, and it was Nebraska and Kansas that we feared. And those teams <laughs> rolled in like it was like, terror because the scale of these people was just like <laughs> some other planet like corn musters <laughs> coming out of nebraska in the 1950s and 60s those kids were so freaking robust the frailty of kids in the midwest now with that genetic epigenetic you know programming autism cancer immune deficiencies you know allergies to everything and then the social isolation. They literally is not a kid in five miles of that kid. Hmm. And all summer long when they're finally out of school, the family keeps them locked in the trailer because they can't go outside because the spraying, aerial spraying and truck spraying going on around them keeps them from being able to breathe. So the kids have such severe asthma, they can't go outside in the summer. And so their life is on screens in the Midwest. And so this is, this is a dark, dark reality of isolation that certainly affects, you know, a 50-year-old farmer who's out there trying to make ends meet. But it's that kid and grandkid that I think is, the isolation just can't be overstated. Yeah. And I think I've seen uh, graphs or heat maps of the cancer concentrations. And it's basically along that route that you just described in terms of... Uh, kind of where we're seeing the, the highest incidences of, of cancer. Gail, I'm wondering like now, you know, as you start to have these moments of Satori and Epiphany and start to integrate, well, you had integrated no-till, but integrate sort of another generation of no-till and, and cover cropping and animal rotation. Um, um, and manage grazing, et cetera. What's going on in, in, 
what's happening with the land, but also what's happening kind of culturally, um, you know, with other farmers? I mean, are you like the, the weirdo hippie out there as you start to integrate some of these practices? He wears flip-flops now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that. that's, that's about it. Yeah. I'm in California with a bunch of tree-hugging hippies on my gun. Yeah, so, you know, by, by 2000, you know, we're, we're 100 plus years into plowing the prairie now, uh, down to two crops. And, you know, I mentioned the inputs that were now just, you know, so, so the farm went from diversity and inputs <laughs> the other and did this in, in my lifetime. And so starting in the, in the early 2000s, when and it was actually 2002, 2003, when I was 40 years old, that I finally learned that soil was alive. It was supposed to be alive. It obviously wasn't. You know, I'd never been taught anything other than soil was a median to put a seed in to, and the soil was just there to kind of hold the plant in place while we added whatever we needed to try to keep it alive long enough to harvest something. And so I went on this sharp learning curve in the early 2000s, started learning about, you know, the soil microbiome and and the cover crops really click. And, and that's also when I first learned that carbon wasn't just something in a pencil. That was my only <laughs> knowledge of carbon at yeah. that time. And and uh, really went on this big kick of feeding carbon to the soil. And, and that the, the, the first aha moment there is we brought wheat back into the rotation. And up until that point, the cover crops were kind of clicky for me. I'd, I'd heard them talked about, but I really wasn't making them work. And outside of just being fun to look at, I were, we really weren't seeing any positive effects until we saw that first wheat crop and the, the whole farm just, just turned like that or that field did. And that's when I realized it wasn't about the wheat, it wasn't about the chemicals or the fertilizers, any of that. It was literally about the carbon in that wheat that I was getting into that soil. And so we, we just did a 180 right then. And within 10 years, we, we had a five year rotation uh, and we had about 13 or 14 different crops we were plugging in and out of that rotation. And soybeans went from every year, every other year in the rotation to once every five years. And it wasn't even soybeans, it was the non-carbon crop, whether it might've be sunflowers or mung beans, but only one year out of five, we was putting in a low carbon crop in that system. And the more I fed the system, the hungrier it got. It was, ju it was just, it literally became a beast that you almost couldn't feed once you brought it to life. And that's why we had to take soybeans almost out because they weren't feeding anything to the system. At the same time as we brought more diversity into the system, you know, crop-wise, we, we just went back like mm -hmm. that. And the inputs just collapsed. Yeah. Hmm. And so soil test we did in the late 90s, um, 98, 99, I was farming 3,200 acres and our soil organic matter across the board was somewhere between 1.7 and 2.2%, which probably when my great great grandfather's first plowed the prairie was probably somewhere between seven and plus 10 plus percent uh, so by 2000 and 2006 2007 we've got everything back above three percent by 2010 we're five to seven percent organic matter wow. and we have one plot that's over ten percent 
Chew. Wow. Yeah. So I you, mean, that, that number is amazing because that's not even thought to be possible, right? No, so if you go to an agronomist and say, what's the maximum carbon content you have in soil, they'll tell you maybe two or three or four. Yeah. But 10% is, is heresy. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, I started trying to dig into it, you know, what we were and what I should be shooting for. And I couldn't even get anybody to tell me 10%. But the, the rogue farmers and scientists told me we were probably above 10% you know, when the buffalo left. And so what are the knock-on impacts or the downstream impacts of being able to fix that carbon? Like what's happening in the soil and then subsequently in the, in the plant? So the, so I, I made my first attempt at no-till in the 80s. We failed miserably. And in 94, we went back and started again. And there was a handful of farmers doing no-till at the time. And they told me within three years, the earthworms would return. And basically my life, would never have another bad day, literally. <laughs> that the rains would fall gently, yeah, you know, right. the sun would and shine. Consistently. And, and they were right. In three years, we could take a spade out, and if we dug 10 or 15 times, we could find an earthworm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but we were still eroding soil rapidly, and the system was dead. But by, by 2006, you know, six, seven, eight, you know, we're digging earthworms in every spade full of soil, uh, you know, we did PLFA test, I think in 2009 or 10, and, and that's a photolipid fatty acid test that actually counts the microbes in the soil. And we did it, we compared my, my best farm ground to some unbroke native prairie that was about two miles away, and we had higher counts than the prairie did. Uh, probably one of the biggest changes that, that was a little scary for a farmer to take was the, the, the insects that just... We had every insect in Kansas, I think, showed up on our farm. And mm. as a farmer, ah! yeah, we're trained to kill these things. <laughs> yeah. But I also knew that ladybugs are supposed to be good things. I just, you know, we were never trained any of this. I, I knew they were good. This goes back to what you yeah, know no, and what you've been taught. Yeah. And so that's when I, I stumbled across an entomologist from South Dakota State, Dr. Jonathan Lundgren. And uh, we went and listened to him speak and, you know, finally got confirmation that that we were on the right track. And, and we saw that, you know, we would get a call from the agronomist. Well, we've got, got aphids attacking, you know, the, the grain sorghum crops or the corn crops. And, you know, we need to get you on the list to get it sprayed. And I'm like, you know, we got a lot of lace wings and a lot of ladybugs. I, I think I'll wait a day or two. Yeah. And that kind of became my mantra is I, I gave it a 48 hour thing because we couldn't lose a crop to insects. We couldn't afford it financially. I didn't want to spray, but we couldn't go broke. So I had this 48 hour rule we put in and uh, I would give it 48 hours and see if the, the predator showed up and in every instance they did. Uh, but when your agronomist is calling you and saying, well, your neighbors have already all turned in their order and if you don't go along, they'll be renting your farm next year. And that, that's a quote. I mean, that's the pressure that, that's being put on you. But never once did I fall for that once I got it figured out in the beginning, obviously I did. But once, once life started coming back to the farm and we started feeding the system, I mean, we realized Mother Nature's there to help if we just get out of the way and let her. And, you know, our infiltration rates, which is the, how fast our soil can soak in water. And this, this could be important in California, maybe. You think? Uh, <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't measure that. All we did was baseline soil test in the, you know, in the 90s to see how much nitrogen we needed to buy. But by talking with NRCS and other soil officials on our farm with our organic matter the way it was in the late 90s, our infiltration rates would have been around a half inch an hour. 
by 2010, our worst soil was six inches an hour. And in 2018, we were infiltrating the first inch of rainfall in nine seconds and the second inch in 20 seconds. Wow. wow. So when you have that very low integration rates and the soil's that desiccated, when it does rain, what's happening there? It's all running off. It's all running so off. So what's you know, flood, flood rates are going up. You know, that's how we have a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico now, because not only when that soil is leaving, it's taking with it our fertility and mm -hmm. our chemicals and things like that. So, so it's actually running off and taking the chemicals with it. Yeah. And so as our weather patterns are now changing, we're seeing longer periods of dry. And when it does rain, we're getting five, 10, 15 inches of rainfall in a two or three week period now, or maybe in 24 hours, like we could see here tomorrow. And if you don't have a soil that can soak that in, you're gonna be playing the crop insurance game for a long time. Mm -hmm. So then you, as you begin to um, instill and, and reify all these techniques and practices on the land, what was happening in the greater farmer community around you? Were, you know, again, were you seen as, as sort of an outcast? Or I'm just kind of trying to dig into that cultural element yeah, there. The, the isolation went from bad to completely isolated. Yeah. Uh -huh. you, I think it's important to realize how you overcame that, too, was no longer with neighbors, but with... A, a new culture that yeah, was arising. We, we rebuilt yeah. a new community of yeah. other like-minded farmers and consumers. From that, around the world. Yeah, from, yeah. literally from around the world. Yeah, right. uh, we had, so Lynette and I started a field school in 2012 with help from my mentor, Joe Clapperton. And for the first eight years up until COVID, uh, we had more attendees from overseas than we had from in county. Hmm. So we, we built a new community and, wow. and it, it was fascinating because it really bridged a lot of gaps. And we, you know, when, when you're talking to farmers from South Africa and Indiana and New York that aren't growing corn or soy or any of those things, you know, the, the information shared and, and the ability that we could adapt and change because you know, if I got five farmers telling me, well, I tried this and it didn't work, you know, it, it just speeds the process, wow. obviously. Uh, and, and from a mental aspect for me personally, I can tell you, I, I scouted corn and soybean fields from a need. I had to, that, that was my job. I had to keep them alive. Cover crops I went out into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. There was no need to scout them. We never sprayed them. It, it was, you planted them and then you, you killed them with chemicals or cattle or whatever to, to, to put an end to plant your cash crop. Yeah but I'm spending every waking moment out in my cover crop because, you know, after the first two or three cover crops, we're now planting a hundred species mix of, wow. name it, we're throwing in vegetables, we're throwing in vines and broadleafs and grasses. And, and after we met Dr. Lundgren, it was, you know, our realization of needing insects is, well, not all insects like one plant. So, you know, we're trying as much diversity as possible and you just want to go out there and lay down. Soak it in. There's a huge lesson there. Like with we talk about regeneration and renewal and that kind of stuff, right? But like what he's doing, uh, we sort of talked about this last night. He's not fighting against Monsanto or Bayer or all these. He's not. He's not doing that. He's fighting for something rather rather than against. He's fighting for. He's creating this new, as you just 
kind of directed them toward this new culture and a new community and all these people that, you know, you can connect with now that, that are, it's more almost a global thing. It's creating something new, right? Instead of fighting an old paradigm and like saying how something's wrong and he's busy out there in the field, you know, like creating something new. That's incredibly powerful. I think like putting, putting our energy into that, can yield such incredible results. And yeah. I think that's why it's great that, you know, Gail's here talking with us because he's kind of a living embodiment of that, you know? You guys all talked about the isolationism and how it grew from post-World War to, to modern time. And as those, the community died and the farmers got big and the isolationism got worse, uh, you know, somewhere in that time frame, the 80s and the 90s, we went from, from talking to other farmers to we would still talk to them but you never told them what your crops yielded. You never told them what you were using. Hmm. That all became secret mm -hmm. because there was such a competition for, for land. Right. You couldn't give away any secret. But in the new community that we've built, that's global. Yeah. Any farmer that's doing this will tell you <laughs> every source. little secret. Yeah, yeah that's every incredible. Every single yeah. one. Yeah. And all these guys, my community around me that, that has kicked me out, that I'm now isolated from, any one of them today that would come to me and ask for help, I'm going to tell them every secret because I can't, what, what is needed on this planet today has to happen at such a scale that I can't keep this information in. I, mm -hmm. I, I can do a lot of good on my little farm and I can bring in a lot of insects and I can bring in more wildlife and all of this stuff. But if we want to bring back the prairie chicken and the, and the beaver and we want to bring back clean water at scale and healthy food at scale, we, we, we've got to have all of us in this mm -hmm. fast. Mm -hmm. That's what it's like. Yeah. Zach, can you pull on that for a second? Because so, so as Gail is bringing more earthworms and microbes into the soil and that soil is coming back alive, what's happening then in the plant from a micronutrient perspective or, or even like, you know, we've talked in the past about how herbicides and glyphosate blocks that chicken mate pathway, which is, you know, prohibiting us from getting certain essential amino acids, et cetera. Like what's happening then in the plant that then can be transferred to the human and, and our ability to be vibrant and vital. It's basically a journey of, of shifting out of a scarcity mentality into an abundance mentality. And so that as we went reductionist on the farm and said you can only have nitrogen or maybe nitrogen phosphorus or maybe nitrogen phosphorus potassium, the plant actually had to just become the plant because every last scrap of nutrient was being immediately utilized in a starving plant basically and for that there was a loss of community and at the plant level what community looks like is basically a mycorrhizae uh, if you've ever thrown a shovel in in soil it's the spider webby weird stuff in there that is the mycorrhizae and the mycorrhizae are a weird weird structure that is not actually a species of in and of itself it's actually a co-creation between a root and uh, and the mycelial network of the fungi within the the soil system and they co-create create mycorrhizae and mycorrhizae is the way in which sharing happens uh, between the plants and so when you go to something like a 15 let alone 100 species cover crop what you're doing you're creating so much nutrient 
diversity. You're moving from this, this reductionist approach back to biodiversity. You're now doing nature's code. Nature's code is adaptation, biodiversity. Biodiversity's purpose is to create more ad adaptation quicker. The adaptation is to create more biodiversity. So it's this feedback loop between adaptation and biodiversity. When you break that, then scarcity happens. When you reconnect that, abundance happens. And we now know that there's many plants that thrive best in soils that don't have the nutrients that are even that that plant most needs. Instead, they are fed by other species that know that plant needs this. And so it's this beautiful giving economy, gifting economy that happens within the plant world. As there's abundance, they immediately start making mycorrhizae, which are basically the highway systems get nutrients down back in and up into the plant, back down into the soil. So it's a two-way traffic happening in that system. And so he has a system that's so resilient now that after seven years of really intense drought, 23 years of pretty significant drought in the Midwest, his farm is booming. He, he, he can hold 180,000 liters per acre is, is a rough estimate of what his soil is now holding that it didn't have 10 years ago. You know, So 180,000 liters of water is sitting in there making those nutrients bioavailable. It's the jance between water and carbon that makes nutrients available. And so he's feeding carbon, he's holding water, he's creating biodiversity, and so he's become the hands of nature itself. And when you become the hands of nature, you get to witness abundance happen. And, and he said something cool, which is, I just want to be out my cover crop and lay down. Yeah. Every farmer, including I would suspect Gail, it was too busy to even think about laying down when they were chemical farming. And so there's something beautiful that happens as the plants become abundant, as you become part of that abundance and, and the, the gifting economy includes you as the farmer. And if you read, you know, something like, you know, The Call of the Reed Warbler is one of my favorite books in, in this thing. And uh, is Australian, you know, family losing the farm through chemical agriculture like you're hearing now. And it's this call of a bird that's left in one little pond in the corner of this guy's world that, that wakes him up to his crisis one morning. He's walking across the field and hears the call of this bird. And it, it reconnects him to his deep knowingness. It sparks that, that epigenetic memory of like, I grew up hearing that bird and I haven't heard it for years. And it was one reed warbler standing on top of a, a reed in the middle of a distant pond. And he realized that in his lifetime, he had seen the disappearance of biodiversity. And that was his beginning journey back into uh, becoming the hands of nature and, and really back into this gifting economy. And what you described is so perfect is that that immediately leads not to the, just the behavior between the plants making mycorrhizae so they can share with the mycelium that can then share with distant plants. The farmers themselves are exhibiting the same behaviors. They're making connections and then sharing information. And so what you guys are witnessing at one of your farm events is the exact same thing at a fractal level from, from what's happening in the mycorrhizae. Your farm school your, is creating that mycorrhizal mycelial kind of network of information sharing that has broken down in the other farmers who will not share information for the scarcity that they feel. And so that the mental health crisis that we see is a, an exact symptom or projection of what's happened in the soil.
breakdown of information and sharing at the soil, breakdown of information and sharing at the, at the human level, because ultimately we're just a natural organism that carries ecosystem within us. The more ecosystem you hold, the more intelligence you, you have as a species. We now know that the human colon is the most complex ecosystem on the planet. The human colon in its anatomy holds more biodiversity per cubic centimeter than anything else. Jungles, rainforests, you know, the coral reefs, nothing compares to a human colon. And we're now starting to realize, my God, this is what unleashes intelligence is when a single neurologic system has access to that much information. That's what makes you intelligent. And so as you kill a farm, you've also killed the intelligence of the farmer. As you kill the food system of a society, you kill the intelligence of that society. And so our extinction that we're now marching into through our own infertility, as the soil goes infertile, so do the humans that would live from that soil. One in three males is currently infertile in all Western countries of the world, in all Western technological countries, as you might think of it. And so we've lost fertility, uh, one in three. We're headed to, to be probably 80% sterile by 2040. And so as we lose our capacity to, to procreate as a species, uh, we are demonstrating that, that very function of biodiversity equals intelligence equals fertility equals you know, survival equal, equals you know, progress. And yet it takes such a short period of time to reverse those decades and generations of separation and scarcity and everything else. And the healing happens so incredibly fast. And ultimately, I think that's what we can walk away from. And your book starts to touch on as you, you go into those last chapters, the healing starts. And once it starts, it snowballs and, and you go from a, a couple of earthworms per 13 shovelfuls to 13 worms per shovelful. And so that's that momentum of, of life is what has occurred here for 4 billion years. It is so much force behind life and you cannot destroy it. The exact amount of energy that was here in the 1940s before chemical agriculture is still here on this planet. It's just changed form right now. And right now, all of that energy that used to be in our soil is in our hurricanes. It's in our tornadoes. It's in our you know, volcanic material. But the earth holds that energy and its transmutational power of the natural disasters we're seeing is just a displacement of the energy that used to fuel us is now taking taking apart that what we've created or separated ourselves from that nature nature so that that phenomenon is happening and one last thought that i share and then turn it over to you guys for some last thoughts too and maybe even the last phrase from the book if there's one coming to mind but it, it's terrifying to realize that 85 percent of our rainfall is filled with these chemicals 85 percent of the air we breathe and then you go to any grocery store in the country and you're, you're buying these chemicals. Organic less than, but not zero because it rained on that organic crop, right? So we've really created a water-soluble toxin pool that can't be separated from life itself. And so you start to give up hope as a biologist or as a doctor seeing, you know, the maelstrom of, of collapse of human biology and human fertility collapse. You start to really get into crisis at moments. But a study came out recently from uh, Ohio State, I think it was, that did this study, and they were studying the, the biologic impacts specifically around cancer and herbicides, pesticides, and they were trying to tease this out. And they were feeding higher and higher concentrations of herbicides and pesticides to, to rabbits to show this direct correlation. 
And they had a whole bunch of different groups, you know, participating in rabbits in these cages and this lab over there participating in different concentration. And one of the highest concentration groups that was supposed to be expressing cancer instantly, basically, was was surviving unbelievably healthy and they just it was like this outlier from all the other data finally the study wraps up and none of the rabbits in that damn pool of high herbicide pesticides were dying they went and even during the study and analyzed like what are we doing is there something being done right made sure the chemicals were in there made the Finally, at the end of the study, somebody thought to interview the technicians in the lab as to what was going on. It turned out there was a technician in there that loved rabbits. And before he would feed the rabbits, he would pet each rabbit and tell him how much they, he loved them and how beautiful they are and how sexy they are as rabbits and just how amazing you are. And there was just like this, this, this energetic imprint on the animal kept them completely immune from the effects of this high chemical substrate. And so as we ask that question is, is it too late? Which is what a lot of, you know, now you're hearing a lot of international whistleblowers like we, we can't stop climate change, we're all gonna go extinct, blah, blah, blah. And I think the answer lies right there, unless we start loving each other, unless we start telling each other how beautiful we are. Because the moment we do, we will become so resilient to this toxic stew we've created that we will survive to play in this new intelligence that will emerge on the planet post-extinction. Extinctions are great for, for ecology. It always gets better, it always gets yeah. smarter, it always gets more beautiful. His farm is more beautiful for the stress that it had for all those decades before. He's hitting levels of earthworms higher than the prairie nearby. Mm -hmm. yeah. So he's created something more vibrant than nature had imagined before for the stress. Mm -hmm. And so the, the one-two punch there is the stress is good for us. It's gonna create something beautiful and the love and, and the nurture can overcome all mm -hmm. the toxicity that we've created to date. And so those are, those are the promise I think that we hold right now is that when we talk about a regenerative movement, it's not about low till, no, no spray and this thing. Like everybody's rushing around trying to create, you know, I think there's 270 new certifications that farmers can get. <laughs> oh, wow. 270 coming down the pike. And, and now there's a Regen Organic certification that you can get that, that Patagonia and Rodale worked hard on to get out. And that it'll be, it be in service and that consumers will have more information. But we need to remind each other all the time that no certification is gonna heal this land. It's gonna be the community of the soil and that soil community. It's gonna be the community that would then share the food out of that that land mm -hmm. coming back together and doing it. And when we start to love each other, that revolution will be so complete and so instantaneous that all of your Davos scientists can't even comprehend how fast this thing is gonna change. It looks like it's impossible until somebody decides to love something and, mm -hmm. and we have the opportunity to participate in that equation. Mm. That's so beautiful, Zach. I mean, there is this whole emerging field study of sociogenomics, really, which is just us being here together is actually influencing the expression uh, of our genes. Um, and it's, it, you know, Alex, I, I want to maybe just end with you because, you know, there's a light bulb moment that came on for me when I was reading um, The Overstory. Oh, of that course, book. Yeah. And, um, Fantastic. And there's a, a fictionalized recount uh, of a woman who, in the book, I, I believe her name is Patricia Westerford, but I think uh, you must know her. I think her name is Suzanne Simron. Or, or, and um, she, um, 
she ran these experiments where she was actually was able to sort of mark carbon and uh, and feed a, tr a specific tree and then would see that carbon show up in a different species tree uh, within the same forest. And, you know, to me, you know, I, I always sort of understood about nature and its mutual interdependence, but to actually to actually feel it within the context of story, uh, it, it, it bent the arc essentially of my life. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, th there are bright glistening stars of hope um, right now. And I wonder just what do you feel is the role kind of of the story and of the storyteller in this time to take, uh, you know, the amazing things that that Gail has accomplished on his farm, and and socialize that and democratize that as wide as possible. What's the role of the storyteller in it? Well, I think that the story gets um, it does two things: it's top level and it's basic level. And by that, I mean um, when I give you this book, for example, right? Um, there's a lot going on in there. The messages aren't hitting you over the head. They're there. It's more about characters and plot and how these people are moving through the world. But all this stuff we've talked about is in there. If I, the, the word uh, epigenic memory, that isn't in there, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but there, you know, there is a native ancestor who keeps coming back and in a, a rather terror, terrorizing form to remind the family and warn the family of what's coming, right? So the power of the story is to take epigenic memory and turn it into a ghost, right? And so we're getting the same message uh, as a reader that Zach is putting out into the world. But for a lot of people, it'll be more palatable, right? That's the whole idea. It's like, I, we want to get these messages and these stories uh, from Zach and from Gail to people who might really need to hear them, but might be the least likely to hear them, right? They're not going to be watching this podcast or listening to it, right? These are the folks that aren't going to lectures. They're not going to seminars. They're not Googling around looking for this, right? When you deliver it in the, in, as a story, it does two things. It, it's much less, uh, you know, uh, in your face isn't the right phrase, but it's much less preachy, you know? Yeah, it's exactly. That, that's the better word. Um, so not only that, but, but people, you, you just kind of alliterated to, alluded to it, um, we all put our own imprint on a story when we're reading it, right? That's the beauty of it. Right. That's the whole point. The whole point is that when you're reading a book, you're putting your own story in there, right? It's hard to do in a, in a podcast or, or in a lecture or something. It's hard for people to identify themselves in that. But it's not hard to do it in a story. And that's why, um, that's why I wanted to do this, you know? I mean... I met Zach on a tiny little island in Fiji, and I didn't know I didn't know him from Adam. I certainly didn't know he was a, this brilliant guy, right? But as soon as I sure, huh, well, now, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it does remain to be seen. Maybe brilliant's not the word. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but but anyway, once I started, like, I got home and I looked up this the Zach Bush guy. I realized that he was, you know, not your average bear in terms of what he was bringing to the world, and I felt like his message uh, and Gail's because of Zach was something that needed to be heard on a level um, 
you know, like I just said, folks that might not be even open to the message, it's not, it's not going to be something where they're reading a book and just getting hit over the head with these, you know, theories and that kind of thing. It was more creating something where people could see themselves in the story. That's the whole idea, you know? Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, I think, you know, before you press send, it's mm -hmm. your story. The second you press send, it's a million people's right. story. And they become they begin to see their own story in it. Mm -hmm. And and that is a huge catalyst for change. And so this is the book, Ordinary Soil. Um, you wrote it, but you guys, well, you wrote part of it too. You're um and, and Gail, obviously you are the central inspiration for it. And uh, I'm just very grateful to sit here with you guys and be part of this uh, this journey to bend the arc of history. So thank you guys. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Yeah. Glad to be with you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Dr. Zach Bush, Gail Fuller, and Alex Woodard. If you want to hear more from Dr. Zach Bush and learn how to best nourish yourself and the future of humanity, go to onecommune.com vital to watch the first five days of his course, Vital Health, for free. And also check out Alex Woodard's new book, Ordinary Soil. It's fantastic. Also, if you enjoy this show and would like to receive 30 days of free all access to commune membership, write us a review. On Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review to gain access to more than 130 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders, all free for 30 days. And while you're there, make sure you're subscribed. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with suggestions, questions, and criticism preferably of the constructive variety, at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jacob Lau, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the Commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>